Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Before I introduce my guest today, I'd like to say a few words about my last podcast with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Some of you are unhappy with that podcast. Many felt that I went easy on Neil, that I let him get away with some sloppy claims, and that therefore the conversation was a missed opportunity. I was also less than totally satisfied with our conversation. And while I'm prepared to take most of the blame for it not being as interesting as it could have been, it's also worth understanding some background facts. I had one hour with Neil. Going into the conversation, I expected him to give a short summary of the essay he had recently written and then to spend the bulk of the hour discussing George Floyd, police brutality, to what extent the police are systemically racist, and so forth. In the context of meeting a person for the first time on a podcast, I found that it's difficult to dive into the most controversial questions first. There's a psychological difference between hearing a question about, say, race and IQ the moment after you meet someone, and hearing that same question after an hour of otherwise good conversation. The answers I elicit out of a guest, especially on controversial topics, are more likely to be interesting if the conversation is warmed up, so to speak. So I consider it part of being a good host to warm up the conversation so that I get the best out of my guest. The downside of that approach is that time can move quickly. I asked Neil to summarize the opening story from his essay, which was just a few paragraphs of text, and suddenly 30 minutes went by. Most of it spent talking about a different topic, racial stereotyping in the media. In general, I try to strike a balance between forcing the conversation in the direction I want it to go in and exploring the topics that my guest seems keen to explore in the moment. Neil was very keen to talk about stereotyping, and he's not the easiest guest to interrupt, especially over Zoom. So that's how half of the podcast became virtually a monologue on a topic that, you know, though it was very interesting, was not what I intended to talk about. By the time I managed to get the conversation on the topic of current events, we only had 30 minutes left. And that 30 minutes was not split evenly between myself and Neil. I think Neil may have expected that my podcast was more like an interview show where the host asks short questions and the guest takes up about 95% of the airtime. Combine that expectation with the fact that, again, Neil is very difficult to interrupt. And 30 minutes of time might really mean 5 or 10 minutes of time for me to speak. That's five or ten minutes to give Neil as full a picture of my critique of Black Lives Matter as possible, while also responding to the points he's making. Given that constraint, I certainly failed to push back on some of his points as much as I wish I had. And the conversation was less interesting than it could have been. Going forward, I think I'll impress upon my guests that this is more of a 50-50 podcast rather than an interview. 
that expectation alone might have changed the outcome of the last podcasts. In any event, I hope that you think the conversation wasn't a total failure. And I hope that Neil comes back on the podcast in the future and that we have a better conversation. My guest today is Brian Green. Brian Green is an American theoretical physicist, mathematician, and string theorist. He's been a professor at Columbia University since 1996 and chairman of the World Science Festival since co-founding it in 2008. I took Brian's class when I was a freshman at Columbia and was blown away by his ability to make special relativity and general relativity seem so simple without losing any scientific rigor. Today, we're discussing his new book, Until the End of Time. Brian's written several great books about physics, but this new one goes beyond physics and touches on everything from consciousness to religion to the meaning of life. As always, thank you to those of you who support the podcast financially. If you want to support, please go to my website at colemanhughes.org. You can also support me at no cost by subscribing to my YouTube channel. And last but not least, if you want access to my full podcast, including subscriber-only content, but you can't afford it, please email admin at thisis42.com. We'll give you complete access for free. I don't want a lack of money to prevent anyone from accessing my content. So if that describes your situation, please email admin at thisis42.com. Okay, without further ado, Brian Green. All right, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, It's my pleasure. So I uh, took your class when I was a freshman at Columbia, Frontiers of Science, and got to experience your awesome lectures about special relativity and general relativity. So it's a a real treat to have you on. Thank you. And uh, you've recently uh, written a book called Until the End of Time. And I think that's going to be our focus for the day. And it's a, it's a book that touches on the very deepest themes, both of science and of you know, subjectively what it's like to be a human being, um, you know, both the, what we know about the world in a third-person way and what we feel about the world in a first-person way. And a, I think a big part of the theme of the book is trying to reconcile uh, the kind of profound inner experiences one can have as a human being with the you know, objective mode of thinking about reality. So I want to talk about what was your you know, impetus to write about the book and how especially you know, the inevitability of death motivated your inquiry here. Yeah. So spot on description of what the book is about and what I was trying to do in the book. And the motivation really came from a deeply personal place. I, as many people, perhaps most people, perhaps everyone, have struggled with the very strange, very deep, very profound, inevitable tension between our recognition that we have these minds that can think about times all the way back to the Big Bang that can imagine a future out as far as mathematics can take us. And yet we live these short, infinitesimal, finite lives when we consider the time skills of the cosmos. And the tension between being able to think about the grand expanse of time at the same time knowing that your own 
duration is so fantastically finite has for me been something that has always informed the way I think about things, informed the kinds of things that I do, the kinds of undertakings that I spend my time on. So I really, for a very long period, knew that I wanted to write a book that would explore those themes, explore the fact that we're this singular species that recognizes our own mortality, we're this singular species that can contemplate past and future, and we are the singular species that can really understand precisely what you said at the outset, that there are are third-party accessible qualities of the objective world, and yet there are these first-person qualities of subjective experience, and they're all vital to a full life. And how do they relate to one another? How do they interlace with one another? How do they inform what it means to be alive, what it means to be human? I was really interested to see that you quoted heavily from the book, The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker, uh, especially in the introduction to your book. That book had a huge influence on me when I read it about six years ago. And uh, I want to tell you just a quick little story. You know, my mother passed away when I was 18 going on 19. And in the wake of that, I began reading lots of books trying to make sense of, you know, the impermanence that I had just, you know, hit me like a brick wall, um, really for the first time. And Ernest Becker's book somehow came into my life and I read it. And the, the basic premise was what you sort of outlined that as humans, we're these creatures that can contemplate the infinite and, you know, seek something transcendent. Yet at the same time, we're food for worms. And there's an inevitable tension there. And I was going to a therapist for grief at the time. And I remember one day I came in and I I told him, well, I've been reading this book by Ernest Becker called The Denial of Death, and it's really bumming me out. It's really affecting me in a, you know, it's making me, you know, more depressed. What do you think I should do? It's, It's all about death and the denial of death and whatnot. And the therapist said to me, well, you should probably stop reading that book. <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about that book and how that book informs how you address these issues? Yeah, well, I, I encountered the book a long time ago as well, longer timescale because I'm much older than you are. I encountered it back in the early 1980s when I was an undergraduate. And I can well imagine that if you came upon that book after suffering a deep and profound loss, like you're describing, it would play a certain role in your thinking that certainly could make it difficult, a difficult read. I read it while not in that frame of mind. And so I took it in much more as a survey of the kinds of things that have motivated the species to undertake the various activities that we recognize that we have undertaken, from all the way back to our ancestors walking on the African savanna right up to the current time. And for that reason, it provided me a kind of unified theory of human experience, a kind of unified theory of human motivation. And that, for someone who's interested in unified theories of the physical universe, was a wonderful breath of fresh air, a wonderful insight 
that all of a sudden allowed me to organize the wealth of human behavior, the wealth of human undertaking under a singular rubric. We do what we do, not exclusively, but much of what we do is to try to deny the physical fact that our lives are finite, that we are impermanent. Some people strive to create monuments. Some people strive to create great works of art. Some people strive to have long lineages, something that will allow us to outlive the finite nature of our physical form. And so when I read Becker's book and he described these things, it kind of allowed me to lift my focus on, say, unified theories of physics to a more broad unification that would also include subjective experience. And for that reason, it had a deep, deep impact on me and one that has really stayed with me. I don't know if you wound up ever going back to the book, but it's, it is worth doing because, again, in the right mindset, the right frame of mind, I think it can really give a lot of clarity on why we do what we do. Yeah, I, I did end up going back to the book. You know, to be clear, the book was so powerful, I couldn't finish it the first time. Yeah. Because it seemed so clearly to be describing what was true. Um, in that frame of mind, it was hard for me to swallow it. But I did later go back when I was in a healthier state of mind. And, and I think he calls these immortality projects, what you're describing. Exactly. You know, for some people, it's their children. For some people, it's their book, you know, and, and so on and so forth. But it's really a book that's worth reading. This is a very ambitious book. It's, um, you know, you go through everything from, you know, certain ground you covered in your other big think books on physics, but you also go to everything from, you know, conscious experience and creativity to religion and so forth. So, you know, at a glance, it can be hard to reconcile these different levels of analysis, you might call them. How do you think about trying to explain the same reality, both in terms of atoms and quarks, but also in terms of emotions and feelings? Well, I think that really is the project that we're all on in one way or another. I mean, for most of my career, I have focused on the physicist reductionist account of how the world works. I have focused my attention on the equations that describe the electrons and the quarks and the other particles that make up matter. I focus my attention on the equations of the general theory of relativity that allow us to understand the structure of the environment, namely space and time, within which those particles move and coalesce to create structures. But for me, that story is not an end to itself. To me, that story plays the role of giving the foundation upon which a whole collection of parallel or nested stories needs to be overlaid in order to have the full depiction of reality. You don't want to try to describe human experience or even more mundane things, even tossing a baseball into the air. You'd never want to describe that using quarks and electrons. You could, but it would be the wrong language. It would be in ineffective language. It'd be an inefficient language. If I gave you a tower of data that described the motion of every electron and every quark in a baseball that's flying from home plate out to the center field bleachers, you'd look at that mountain of data, you'd have no idea what it means. 
But if I then summarize that data, say, oh, it's a baseball flying from home plate to the bleachers, like, okay, I got it. Why don't you just say that in the first place? So you need to use the right language, the right vocabulary in order to capture the essence of phenomena that happen at different scales. So the reductionist account is the deepest one, and that's what we physicists have worked on for a very long time. But that story only really comes to life when you recognize how it interlaces, how it has a relationship to the chemist story that brings in molecules, the biologist story that brings in cells, the psychologist story that brings in the mind, the neuroscientist story that brings in the fundamental structure of the brain that supports mind, the philosopher's story that allows us to ask the kinds of questions that a mind like ours is able to ask. Like, why are we here? Where do we come from? And where's it all going? So to me, it's a collection of stories that, when put together, yields this wondrous narrative that takes you from the beginning of time to the very end of time and recognizes that within that story, human experience is an important part. And that's why in the book, I don't just focus upon the physics per se, but I describe how the physics leads to the origin of life, leads to the origin of mind, and then minds develop language. And with language, minds can then tell stories. And from those stories, myths develop. And from those mythological tales, religions develop. And from religions, we have expressions of various sort. We have artistic expression to try to give the world something that is deeply personal and yet can affect us all in a profound way. And it's that collection of stories that ultimately allows each one to shine in a way that on its own would be very difficult. Yeah, I've always, I really like the way that you describe them as different languages. I think that's a great analogy because I've always been, you know, mystified when people pit two different of these languages against each other as alternatives that one has to choose between. So for example, someone will say, well, love is just, you know, neurons firing in your brain. It's not actually real. And another person will say, no, love can't just be neurons firing in your brain. It's, it has to be something else because it's real. When really, it seems to me that there, you can describe love in two different languages or, you know, in 10 different languages at different scales, as you say. That's exactly right. That's exactly the point. And, and the beauty of it is that when you learn the many different languages, whether it's the physicist's account, the chemist, the biologist, or the poet's account, when you can speak all those languages and very seamlessly move between them, then qualities of the world become yet more richer because of that. You know, Richard Feynman had this wonderful quote, you've probably seen it, where he was describing his experience of encountering, say, a, a red rose. And someone asked him, does your understanding of quantum field theory and all the particles, doesn't it take away the mystery and the beauty and the wonder of the rose? Because you're like right down at the gory details. And he was like, no. He says, I experienced the rose like everybody else does. I, I experienced the rich color. I experienced the, the wonderful fragrance. But I can even go further than that if I so choose, because I can imagine the molecular processes that give rise to the red color. I can imagine the chemical reactions that yield the beautiful aroma. And that deepens my experience. It doesn't lessen it. And, and that's really the point. Combining the languages, 
just gives you a ramified experience that approaches your experience in so many different ways that collectively it's just richer than it otherwise would be. Yeah. And I think the, the area where this most, this tension most comes out is when you try to apply, you know, reductionist principles of scientific inquiry to the human mind. And a lot of your book is devoted to that. And I want to talk a little bit about that right now. And I had Annika Harris on this podcast a little while back who wrote a great primer on the problem of consciousness and philosophy. And you have a chapter devoted to this. So I just want to read a little bit of your book here and then get your reaction. Sure. So you say, science reacts to talk of realms beyond the reach of physical law with an exasperated grimace, a turning on its heels and a swift return to the lab. Such scoffing represents a dominant scientific attitude, but also highlights a critical gap in the scientific narrative. We have yet to articulate a robust scientific explanation of conscious experience. We lack a conclusive account of how consciousness manifests a private world of sights and sounds and sensations. We cannot yet respond, or at least not full force, to assertions that consciousness stands outside conventional science. That gap is unlikely to be filled anytime soon. So that's a huge, it's a huge gap that, you know, science still can't give an account of why there's something it's like to be the collection of atoms that I call me. So how do you think about that gap? Well, I think it's an exciting gap. It's a frustrating gap. At the same time, we've made such incredible headway at understanding the properties of the fundamental ingredients and the fundamental laws that govern how those ingredients behave, but synthesizing those ingredients into more complex forms, be it the biology of a human being or the, the neural processes of a human brain is something that's incredibly difficult because there's so many particles that are involved. And we are really good at describing systems of one or two or three or a handful of particles, but you go up to trillions of particles, and that is a challenge that science or physics in particular has yet to reach. So it is the case that as of today, there is no scientific consensus on the most basic quality of human experience, which, as you say, is the fact that inside our heads, there's a world of these sensations, a world of sounds, a world of emotion, a world of reaction, a world of thought. Why is it the case that there is an inner world at all? Is the deep or so-called hard problem of consciousness. And my suspicion, and I argue for this in that chapter, but it's really at this stage only a suspicion, is that one day we will close that gap. And when we close it, will recognize that consciousness is nothing but the physical properties, the motions, the interactions of the particles, in our case, that make up a human brain. That we won't need anything else. We won't need to grab some fundamentally new kind of idea that stands radically outside science as we know it. All you'll need are the ingredients and the laws that govern them and you'll then recognize that every thought you have, every emotion you feel can be described in the language of reductionist science. But as you said just a few minutes ago, 
I would never say, and I suspect neither would you, that that gives an exhaustive account of the value and the meaning of those kinds of sensations. You need to shift your language. You do need the language of the poet or the novelist or the artist to capture human experience, even if that experience at rock bottom is totally dependent upon and totally emerges from the motions of particles governed by physical law. Yeah, so I am less optimistic about the prospect of understanding the hard problem. Um, You know, to me, it seems like we have this hunk of meat in our heads, and we know that the materials that make up the meat are not special, so, so far as we know. It's just atoms and cells, atoms of the kind that you could find in any inanimate object. And we know there's something special about the way that it processes information because brains are, you know, amazing spectacles of information processing. But even then we, we don't have reason to believe that information processing necessarily leads to consciousness because computers do it and so forth. So I don't see how we could find some kind of explanation for why this particular meat-based information processing machine has experience associated with it. Yes. So that's a good summary of the hard problem. That's a good summary of why it is that you're not alone in your suspicion that it may take something more exotic than physics or science as we know it. You know, people like David Chalmers has spent some time banging his head against the wall, trying to come up with an explanation for consciousness that would not require something else. And his self-described failure to achieve that goal has led him to some pretty far out sounding ideas, like maybe electrons and quarks themselves have some fundamental primitive level of consciousness or proto-consciousness. And it's that primitive proto-conscious quality that we've missed to date, but if we understood it, which we don't, and neither does he, but he imagines that if we understood it, we'd recognize that when you put a lot of particles together, their proto-conscious qualities meld together into the conscious awareness that we all experience. So that's an interesting and fairly radical idea. My own view, my own, again, suspicion is that because we are conscious beings, We tend to make too much of consciousness. We tend to endow it with greater mystery than it deserves. And a good analogy, but imperfect for sure, is life itself. There was a time when life itself was viewed as so exotic that the notion that it could simply emerge from particles coming together in the right configuration was something that people couldn't imagine that would ever be the answer. So back, you know, in the 1800s, there was this idea of vitalism, that in order to have a living system, sure, you take the right ingredients, fine, but then you need to inject something else from the outside. You need to invoke this life force that allows the inanimate matter to breathe with the fumes and the currents of life. No one thinks that way any longer, largely because as we've understood life better and better, we still don't understand it fully by any means, but most people have shifted, segued to the perspective 
that it's just the particles, it's just the laws, it's just stuff coming together in the right way to yield the physical processes that we would identify as a living system. My, my guess is, my suspicion is that we will follow a similar trajectory for consciousness. We'll recognize that there was a time when it seemed incredibly mysterious, but then as science understood conscious experience better and better, it became less and less necessary in most people's minds to invoke anything beyond the particles and the laws. And moreover, when we start to create conscious beings, or at least beings that speak as though they are consciously aware, and yet they're inside of an inanimate structure normally thought of, a computer, when we start to have artificially intelligent beings that really convince us by virtue of what they say and how they behave that they do have conscious awareness, I think at that point we'll just come to the conclusion that, yeah, you put the stuff together in the right way and the right processes take place and what happens is it becomes self-aware. Yeah. And there could be, there could probably be a, I find it believable. And I think Dennett has talked about this as well, that consciousness could be more like a spectrum than a binary and just. Oh, oh, I totally, I totally agree with that. I do not think that a flip is switched and consciousness emerges. I do agree that the level of organization and the level of complexity has something to do with the level of conscious awareness. And therefore, as you dial, I'm not saying it's a direct linear relationship between them, but as you dial up the complexity and the level of organization, you dial in a different amount of conscious awareness. So I want to pivot a little bit um, and talk about religion. Uh, I found this to be one of the most interesting sections of the book. You talk about why the human mind might be adapted in, in a sense for religion. So can you talk about what you mean by that? Well, there's been a long study in the fields of psychology, evolutionary psychology in particular, that has wondered about ubiquitous behaviors across the spectrum of humankind across the continents and throughout the centuries, behaviors that are so woven within the human tradition cry out for some kind of explanation for why they are there. Do they serve some kind of adaptive purpose? And certainly when it's come to religion, people have undertaken those sorts of studies. And one suggestion among a number is that religious behavior may have played a role in solidifying, gluing together the loosely bound hunter-gatherer groups in our ancestral past. And those groups of individuals that held to the same religious doctrine would have been willing to behave as though they were related by kinship. They would have been willing to fight for each other to sacrifice for each other, and in that way create the kind of group that would triumph in battles that the archaeological records suggest may have been commonplace in our hunter-gatherer past. Darwin himself actually said this. There's a wonderful passage where Darwin describes how those groups of human beings that are bound together 
possibly by a shared belief in some force beyond the natural world, those groups may have naturally been the ones that would have triumphed in battles because of that increased solidarity. So that's one explanation for why religious belief may have persisted and developed. Those groups that didn't have any religious belief may have been the ones that differentially lost out in the battles. And those who had those beliefs, small differential, they would have won in those battles and thereby passed on the tendency to have that kind of belief to their progeny and so on. This predilection for religious belief may have spread. Yeah, th- this gets into the long-standing argument between group selection and individual selection. I remember paying close attention to this argument about four years ago, but it's you know it's been a long time. Yeah. Um, do you have a strong stance on that? And can well, you explain a little bit yeah, what it means? You know, so so you're right. There has been, or there was at least, an argument that went on for a long time as to what is the right level at which natural selection takes place. Could there be natural selection, say, at the level of individuals, you know, those individuals that have particular traits that allow them get the next meal more effectively, more efficiently, they're the ones that will win out at the level of individual. But could it also be the case that evolution and natural selection take place at the level of groups of individuals? So those groups that are able to triumph over other groups give us a unit of selection, and those groups are selected for as opposed to at the level of the individual. And there's been vociferous arguments as to whether that makes sense, because the gene is the fundamental unit of inheritance, and it lives inside of the individual. It doesn't live inside of the group per se. And so is there a notion of groups replicating? groups having progeny? And where do the very basic ingredients in evolution by natural selection, how could they really work at the level of the group? So there have been proponents that the group level of selection does make sense. There have been detractors who have said it doesn't make any sense at all. My reading of that literature, which I did spend some time thinking about for these reasons, is that part of it is a language issue as opposed to a real fundamental difference. Because you can describe the individual as having a greater adaptive quality by virtue of being part of a group. So selection can still be at the level of the individual, but being part of that group that may be tightly bound due to religious affiliation, the group may assist the individual to persist to the level of reproductive capacity. And in that way, it's not so much that the group is being selected for, but it's the individual as part of the group that's being selected for. So David Sloan Wilson and others have, have made similar arguments and done various mathematical analyses that have tried to argue that the whole disagreement between the group selectionists and the anti-group selectionists or the non-group selectionists may have actually been something that really just comes down to how you parse the data, how you slice the data. So nothing that I describe in the book relies heavily on whether or not group selection matters, because again, selection of the individual as part of that group is likely enough. Yeah, now that we're talking about this, I remember writing a 20-page paper freshman year in Daniel Cloud's Philosophy of Science class 
where I came to the conclusion that the disagreement between group selectionists and individual selectionists was mostly semantic. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm, uh, yeah you, I think you, that can be part of it for sure. The other thing that's worth mentioning is, you know, going back, and I hope that my dog barking is not ruining our <laughs> session here. Uh, she's, she's doing what evolution by natural selection has instilled in in her, namely attacking something out there in the wild. Actually, well, evolution by human selection, probably. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly <laughs> right. Uh, we have certainly shaped the evolutionary pressures on these animals, for sure. But, you know, you, you mentioned the denial of death in the early part of our conversation. And Becker, too, has an argument for the potential role of religion that has been developed by the field of so-called terror management theory, which is an area of social psychology that has really carried on the ideas that Becker developed in The Denial of Death. And the suggestion there is that one of the important roles of religion is to allow us to deal with the recognition of our own mortality. The possibility being that we would be paralyzed in some sense early on in the development of the species. Once we recognize that every member of our group was going to die and that we were going to die, we would no longer be able to cope with the challenges of our environment as effectively as we can once we have religion in some way suggesting to us that our physical end is not the end, that there's a possibility that we continue on beyond the cessation of bodily function. And so that's another way in which religion may have played a role in seeding the evolutionary development of the human species. The other thing this implies is that, I guess one could put it this way, that there's a sort of religion-shaped hole in the human mind, and that even as you know, atheism and secularism rise, which they seem to be rising so far as I can tell, maybe, maybe you're more aware of the data than I am in America and Europe, that we still have some need for something psychologically religion-shaped, and we'll sort of fill that vacuum with other things. Do you think that there's some truth to that? I, I absolutely do think that there's some truth to that. And obviously there's data that one can point to that suggests the different levels of belief or non-belief in the world at large, and America and so forth. But just speaking from a more personal perspective, you know, my own view is that, sure, when I'm sitting at my desk working on my equations, I'm not imagining that there's a all-powerful being behind it all that set up the equations. I recognize it's a possibility, but it's not firmly in my worldview even though I allow for the possibility that there could have been a God that set it all in motion. But when I'm not calmly sitting at my desk working on my equations and I'm out there in the real world encountering all the challenges that we as human beings face, it's not that I become a different person, but I do invoke different ways of thinking for the sole reason that I find them comforting. You know, I lost my dad many, many years ago, and over the decades, I have had many conversations with him. And it's not that in some scientific way, I imagine that he really hears me, but in a deep emotional way, I do. And in a deep, deep emotional way, I imagine that he still 
is in some way out there. And again, like we're saying before, having multiple stories, distinct languages, is part of the richness of the capacity of the human brain. So I like to have both of those attitudes, and they both feel that they serve a need, and that need may reach back into our evolutionary past. I'm, I'm not sure. It may, it may not. This is still controversial. But it certainly serves a role in the here and now for me. And, and as, as you know, you mentioned at the outset too, I, I recently lost my mom just a couple of weeks ago. And the number of times that I've been in touch with her, not in some, you know, woo-woo seance way, but just because I have such a deep connection to her that I feel as though she still is within my world. And those words, of course, seem to be at odds with an agnostic or an atheist perspective. They seem to bring up ideas that are in conflict with the scientific worldview. But who cares? When you're a scientist, you're doing your science, and that science can inform your worldview at a certain level of understanding. But when you rise up to the next level, and the level above that, where it's really the level of human experience, then at the level of human experience, there are qualities that I'm willing to inject into my world because they feel right. And that's enough for me. Yeah, I, I really couldn't agree with that more. The, the way I think of it, and this is partly from you know, reading about the modular theory of mind in, in some of Robert Wright's books, that though we like to think of the human mind as a single entity, it might be better to think of it as a lot of different sub-minds competing for attention that are fundamentally different. And there is, you know, I, I definitely have one sub-mind that is just totally logical and looking for fact-based assertions. And when it hears someone talk about life after death is just, you know, tuned to just talk about what's strictly true on the most fundamental level. But there are other, you know, equally present minds that are, are happy to, you know, talk to my, you know, my deceased mother because it is, it serves a important psychological and useful purpose. And I, I think, like you said, it, it's not a matter of deciding which one is right so much as understanding when to, when, in what situations one, what language is appropriate. Yes, um, yes, exactly, exactly. And I think that would go a long way to sort of solving the perpetual disagreements between atheists and spiritual people. Maybe. I mean, that's an optimistic perspective, and I'm certainly an optimist myself. You know, you know the, the challenge comes in when people in each camp view the other as somehow grabbing territory that they consider sacred. Maybe sacred's the wrong word when you're talking about it from the scientific perspective, but I think you know what I mean. You know, there are, there are scientists who view that science provides us with the true way that the world works, and we need to incorporate that truth into our worldview, period, end of story. And of course, I have that perspective too, as you're saying as well, but I'm willing to allow my worldview to have different leaves that can fan out at times and point in different directions based upon the winds of experience that may be blowing in one's life at a given moment. And the danger, of course, is you need to 
draw a line where you're comfortable as to how these stories come together or how these stories talk to each other. What narrative conversation are you comfortable with, if any, between these distinct ways of looking at the world? But in the end of the day, it's hard to draw a universal line that everybody will be happy with. And if people are willing to live in a world that has that kind of nuance, where we give people the freedom to draw the line wherever it feels right, then your optimistic view perhaps can come to pass. But if these issues bring to bear what we teach our kids in school and what kind of things are funded by the government, when they're concrete issues of that sort, it becomes much more difficult for the kind of flexibility that you're describing and I'm describing to uh, have a place. And that's where the challenge comes from. So where does the language of morality fit into all of this? Um, I, I also had Sean Carroll on the podcast, and we were discussing and sort of disagreeing on to what extent morality is a real objective phenomenon. The words right and wrong refer to something just as real when, when we're talking about morality as they do when we're talking about physics. Uh, so where, where do you, how do you see morality? Well, I, I don't know what Sean said. I've never had the conversation with him. But my view is that at the rock bottom, physicist, reductionist account of the world, the concept of right and wrong does not exist. The concept of good and evil does not exist. My view is that those concepts come into being when, let's just be concrete, when the human mind emerges on the scene and recognizes that certain kinds of behaviors are advantageous to group living and certain kinds of behaviors are not advantageous to group living and labels them as good, bad, right, wrong, glorious, evil. And these socially constructed words are incredibly important for the survival of a deeply social species such as ourselves. But these are concepts of our own making, and these are concepts that emerge with our awareness. And I need to stress, sometimes people hear that language and they interpret it as somehow demoting the grandeur of morality, the importance of the distinction between good and evil, right and wrong. And I don't think I'm demoting it at all. In fact, I believe that this perspective aggrandizes it because if the concepts of right and wrong and good and evil are out there and imposed on us by the external world, then all we are doing is absorbing something that somehow is not of our own making. But in the description that I'm giving, we are the place where these words and ideas are originating. We come up with these ideas, and to me, that makes them far more powerful. Because when good and evil comes from ourselves, it's something that's organic and rich and is intrinsically ours, as opposed to something that we're just following from the external world. Yeah, many people feel that if good and evil doesn't come from, say, a god or a religion, 
then it's all as subjective as, say, one's taste in music or, although some people don't think that's objective, uh, subjective rather. But I don't think, think of whatever, whatever is just a matter of taste or opinion. People seem to place morality there if it's not in the hands of God or the Bible or the Quran or so forth. And, you know, it, I think that's a huge mistake because right and wrong mean something, even if they only mean something human. Yes, absolutely. And thankfully, for the most part, we humans can, on the biggest issues in right and wrong, largely agree, right? We can largely agree that certain kinds of behaviors, not fully, but we can largely agree that certain kinds of behaviors are just wrong. And, and, that's, and thankfully, that's the case. And it's not surprising that that's the case because fundamentally, we are effectively the same, right? There are individual differences between us, but the human brain has emerged through whatever, 80,000, 100,000 generations of evolution to have a certain structural form and certain kinds of behaviors and experiences are so commonplace and familiar that they shape the human brain into the form that it currently takes. So it's not surprising to me that with that degree of similarity across the species, there would be a high degree of agreement on the kinds of things that we will label as right and wrong. And I guess I'm saying that to me makes those labels yet more potent because they emerge from us as opposed to emerge from some amorphous entity out there in the world that all we're doing is following the prescription. Yeah. You know, we're speaking in late June, 2020, this will come out in a few weeks, but it's hard to feel right now that we converge on what is right and what is wrong, given how divided the country is over, you know, many issues in the news. But I suppose if you zoom out in a historical perspective, you know, we're probably converging more now than we have as a species ever. Yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to feel that way living day to day when I people agree. are at each other's necks about everything from abortion to rioting and so forth. People seem to have polar opposite perspectives. Yeah, I, 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 I have the same sense, but I'd like to, taking an optimistic stance, view that as the small fluctuations along a curve that ultimately will allow us to converge on qualities of the world that we can all agree are the way things should be and the way things should not be. Along the way, you know, they're going to be, there's going to be a lot of ups and downs in the system. But um, I'd like to think that the trend is toward a greater degree of coherence and convergence as opposed to divergence. So a related question in that it's about progress, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you've, you've thought a lot about this, or you know, as an insider in physics, you, you know, I'm curious what you think. As an outsider, it seems to me that physics has slowed down in terms of the discoveries it's making over the past, say, century. To what extent do you think that is true? And what I mean by that is just, you know, it feels like in 1920, if I were alive and just reading the newspaper, I would be, you know, more excited about what's going to happen in physics this year. Um, what do you think about that? Well, 
It's certainly the case that when physics was a less mature field, when it was a young field, the kinds of revolutionary discoveries that Einstein undertook in special and general relativity or that Einstein and others undertook in quantum mechanics, those were more apt to happen because the field was so young, it was so new, that we were at a phase when I wouldn't call it low-hanging fruit because these were deep and important discoveries, but in order to set the frame of understanding, we had to get to the very basic structures of relativity and quantum mechanics in order that we could then refine them. And as the field matured, then the charge did turn less for revolutionary breakthroughs and more towards refining the revolutionary breakthroughs of an earlier age. Now, there's a lot of revolution that happens in there too, right? The discovery of gravitational waves in 2015, ripples in the fabric of space, that's huge. The photograph in inverse quotes, the radio telescopic measurements of a black hole that allowed us to have an image of a black hole just a couple of years ago. You know, it's not, it's not quite as revolutionary as the discovery of the general theory of relativity, but it's still pretty spectacular. The discovery of the Higgs particle, not as revolutionary as the discovery of quantum mechanics. It's a refinement, but nevertheless, it's giving us insight into a new kind of matter that may be responsible for why familiar matter has mass at all. The discoveries in string theory, which are now certainly hypothetical ideas, these are not ideas that have made contact with observation, but people are now talking about using string theory to perhaps understand the very basic fibers of space and time themselves. So it's more refinement, it's more detail-oriented, and therefore perhaps less revolutionary in how it sounds to someone who's, say, watching somewhat from the outside. But I would say that the rate of progress is kind of stunning. It's kind of stunning, even though it's not as though a brand new, spanking new description of the world, like relativity or quantum mechanics, is what we have to put forward. Yeah, so... um Coming up at the end of our time here, I just have one more question. Uh, I guess it's two questions in one, but what advice would you have in both your capacity as a physicist and as a communicator of physics to general public uh, for someone who wants to be in either of those fields? Yeah, for, for sure. You know, when it comes to someone who actually wants to be a research physicist, for example, the thing that I can't emphasize too strongly is that it's great to get excited about things happening at the forefront of discovery, the kinds of things that are in my books or other popular level books that can really get you fired up to want to work in the field. But at the same time, you've got to learn the old stuff, the basic stuff inside out. There's no substitute for truly understanding things that were discovered a couple hundred years ago, be it Newton's ideas, be it Maxwell's ideas, be it the ideas of quantum physics. You need all of that in order to be able to push the frontier of physics today. 
I, I encounter so many students who come to my classes and they say, oh, I, I've read your books and I really, I love this stuff and I really want to work on string theory. And I say, well, you kind of got to learn the basics first. And like, well, I don't really like math. I don't really want to, you know, and, and, and it's fine to not like math and not want to learn the basics if your interest is at a general level which is the second part of your question. But if it's at the level of really wanting to become a research scientist, you cannot skip over the basic material. And for the general person, for the general public, you know, I think it's absolutely essential that people at some level have an understanding of this spectacular work that is happening at the frontier of science. It's what justifies the money, the taxpayer money that supports these research undertakings. And moreover, I can't tell you how excited people get when they finally grasp some of the ideas, be it extra dimensions of string theory, be it time dilation and relativity, be it quantum tunneling and quantum mechanics. When people who've heard of these ideas, or perhaps not, grasp their essence, and you can grasp the essence through visuals, and through appropriate descriptions, you do not need the technical training. It is a world-opening experience when you realize that reality is so different from what you'd expect based on everyday experience. And I think it's tragic if people don't have that experience. It is one of the most wondrous moments in your life when you look out at the world and you recognize that surface appearances are hiding so much richness just beneath the surface level of reality. And so that is something, that's an experience that I, that I think everybody should have. All right. Thank you so much, Brian. Uh, before you go, can you just tell people where to find you on the internet? Uh, sure. I, um, I'm on Twitter sometimes. I've taken a break of late, but at B Green, I do Facebook as well. And I think it may be the same, but probably quite easy to find. Brian Green somewhere on Facebook. And also World Science Festival, which is a nonprofit organization that I co-founded with Tracy Day. That's a place where you can find all sorts of discussions of science that is exciting and accessible, and people should go check that out, worldsciencefestival.com. Awesome. Thank you, Brian. My pleasure. Thank you, Coleman. We're done. Thank you so much.